All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning and welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. We're broadcasting um, from the ICANN headquarters here in Los Angeles, and um, we have with us John Jeffrey. He's the general counsel of ICANN, and we're going to be learning all things ICANN today, which just celebrated its 15th anniversary last week. So we have a special edition for us, so please be seated. And without further ado, John, are you there? Yes. Hi, Bennett. Um, good to have you here, and um, thanks for having us um uh, over to talk about ICANN, and you know, we were talking a little bit offline about ICANN, and um, I'm sure you've come across a, a lot of misapprehensions about what ICANN is. What are some? What's the best one you can recall? Well, you know, I, I, we get all sorts of stories a long time, but um, I always just try to push back on what ICANN isn't. We aren't the Internet Governance uh, Coordinator for all things. It's for domain names, for unique identifiers, uh, and we try to make sure that there's a single global interoperable Internet that works because those unique identifiers aren't colliding. And um, and ICANN's origins come from an agreement with the Department of Commerce? Well, so uh, ICANN originated from a, a green paper and a white paper uh, that came out of the Clinton administration. Uh, as the commercial Internet began to grow in the late 90s, uh, there became a need for uh, somebody other than the United States government alone to begin to manage aspects of what was happening on the Internet. And so there were lots of pressures on the United States government at that time. To, uh, to find ways to globalize, to find ways to get participation at the stakeholder level in the policies that were set around unique identifiers in the domain name system. And so ICANN was formed as a California public benefit nonprofit, a 501c3 in uh, U.S. tax code, to, uh, to, to serve a function, a public benefit function. And of providing coordination where those technical coordinators, uh, those technical coordination words or, or uh, matters came into play. So, for example, IP numbers, uh, domain names, uh, you know, the unique identifiers. And so, what was the initial relationship of ICANN vis-a-vis the U.S. Department of Commerce? Um, so, uh, ICANN, uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce was the original host of uh, that those functions. And so, if you if you Go back in history, the Internet was really originated as a U.S. government uh, exercise and became commercialized from that base. And uh, ICANN's initial formation then uh, was as an independent entity, and it still is an independent entity, and it entered into a memorandum of understanding with the United States government in part to help ICANN become a functioning organization that was capable of maintaining those things on its own. And that that understanding, that, that MOU, you know, since we were talking earlier about acronyms, but the uh, memorandum of understanding um, that was entered with Department of Commerce or DOC, um, the DOC MOU was just updated recently. Uh, well, actually, so the the MOU had a number of amendments throughout the years. Um, so it first formed in the late nineties, we went through a series of MOUs up until two thousand nine. 
Um, and then we entered into a different form of agreement. So we currently have an agreement that uh, is not structured as an MOU any longer. Um, and we that agreement uh, sets out how ICANN will provide accountability to not just the U.S. government but to the world. So we have reviews of various independent processes and, and pieces within ICANN, uh, and those reviews are meant to feed into ICANN to make it more robust and to improve uh, the way that it works. Now, now last year in um, Dubai, there was the ITU conference, and, and there there was a lot of discussions about the distinctions between ITU and ICANN and what role I, each should or should not play. And um, ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, is governmental. It's a UN body, and its representatives are all governmental, correct? That's, as far as I understand uh, So my understanding is the ITU is a very, uh, it's one of the first um, intergovernmental organizations. So it has nation states that are part of, form a treaty, and they um, uh, work within that treaty. So it's a treaty organization under the UN uh, that works within the telecommunications space. Now, and ICANN, the way you operate is, is somewhat different in that you have, um, it's an open process. I, I for example, you had your next major meeting is in Buenos Aires. Right. Um, anyone listening to this broadcast could attend. Absolutely. Uh, so ICANN is uh, more, more than that. There's lots of other things for them to attend other than just the international meetings. But ICANN holds three uh, international meetings or global meetings around the world. We, we do that in different geographic regions in a prearranged order, and we look for those locations uh, going forward in different parts of the world so there can be participation uh, throughout the world in ICANN's processes. ICANN is a multi-stakeholder organization, so the policies that are built are built from the bottom up. They are um, they have participants from throughout the spaces that are impacted by the ICANN policies. So everyone who is involved in domain names, involved in unique identifiers, participates in ICANN and helps build those processes. And ultimately, how do you decide who wins? I mean, in the dispute between the various stakeholders. Well, it's a consensus-based model. So the idea is that um, the consensus is formed from the parties coming together and arguing out their issues and bringing forth the best ideas and collaborating and coming to a consensus. And consensus models um, are, are noisy and they're loud, and ICANN has a lot of energy uh, in, in its meetings and in its part participation bodies, and part of that is exactly what you would want because you want all of those parties to come in and talk out those things and really work through the problems and build consensus policies. So if there's not a consensus, if it doesn't come through consensus, then there may not be a policy, and that is in fact a, a good thing in many instances because you don't want to overburden any system like the domain name system with a series of policies that are inefficient or in, incapable of being important to that entire uh, constituency base that participates. So clearly you have no members of Congress that are part of your body. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know for sure, but uh, cer certainly uh, um, uh, we would encourage members of Congress or anyone else to participate. And, and I think one of the things that's really fantastic about ICANN is that level of participation. So there's thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that participate at various stages throughout the ICANN processes, and they come together both in these meetings and in telephone calls and in written documents, and they bring a lot of creativity and energy to the policymaking. So the policymaking is very unique 
for a body like this because it's not coming from a top-down or a governmental perspective only, but it's coming from the participants in that process to make sure that those policies that are introduced are meaningful and robust and, um, and are timely. Uh, so one of the other advantages to this sort of model is that the policies can be developed in time to actually have an impact on the Internet, where if you were in a different process, a slower process, um, uh, if you were making laws or you were dealing with treaties, it could be something that would delay the process or might hinder uh, things relating to the development of the Internet. And the whole skirmish that happened last fall at the ITU, um, now ultimately is that, I mean, it seems to me that it's uh, ICANN to some is perceived as being U.S. dominated and it's really a desire to shift power um, over ICANN and the Internet to a, a different sphere where the U.S. may not have as much power. Well, so, so ICANN is based here in California, but it's hardly uh, setting policy here in California. So the participation at ICANN is around the world. We now have three hub offices that operate across the world. We have a hub office that's open in Istanbul. We have a hub office that's open in Singapore. We have engagement offices throughout the world, Beijing, Montevideo, uh, Brussels. Uh, their participation in ICANN is, is not only American. And mm -hmm. in fact, neither is the staff and neither are the board members or the participants at any level. Um, this is a very broad group of uh, technology people and, and IP people and lawyers and participants at every level in, in this sphere that participate around the globe. You told me earlier how many languages are spoken here. Yeah, I think just on the staff, um, last count I was given is, was around 23. Wow. That's a lot of insults to learn. <laughs> what did she say? Um, but but to, go, to, to go back to your comment about the ITU, I, I'm not sure there is a dispute between the ITU and ICANN, and I think that's important to realize. So the ITU is, develops telecommunications policy and mm -hmm. does it under the treaty. ICANN develops policy specifically around the domain name system and the unique identifiers, and uh, you know, we cooperate and work with the ITU where it's appropriate. Now, ICANN just had a major... Um, major development with last year um, with Reveal Day and the, the launch of its um, global, excuse me, generic top-level domains. And um, you, there have been an enormous response. And, um, and just now you just completed your first round of assessments. Right. So, um, so what we're talking about specifically are new generic top-level domains. Yes. So what happens after the dot. So if you think of .com, .net, or any CC, .de in Germany, or .us, or .cn. The, so there's a, a wide variety of things that can happen after that. Top-level domains um, currently are relatively limited in the generic space, so uh, and they're artificially limited. Mm -hmm. um, and recently, in the last few years, we've opened up a round which would offer the capability of uh, people to add things after the dot and create new spaces, new innovative spaces in the generic top-level domain space. So we had 18, we currently have 1,806 active applications for new services. Wow. Um, there were 1,930 applications. There are 1,800 still pending after the evaluations. Um, and 1,749 of those have passed their initial evaluation. So, so already we've signed contracts with tens of those. 
and we've uh, we're entering into a phase where those will be delegated in the coming months. So basically, what these are the contracts become registrars under ICANN, much like what we're familiar with now with all the various you know registrars such as you know GoDaddy or well, actually this is the registry end. So if you think about it from this end, it'd be like Verisign's role with Com or Net, okay. or Newstar's role with Dot Bids, uh, or Affiliates' role with Dot Info. So these are the registries and the registrars like GoDaddy and. Uh, Register.com and all the, uh, many other They'll registers. But now, a be thousand, distributors of them. now over a thousand ICANN accredited registrars that also exist around the globe selling these domain names. Um, those companies sell for the registries. So uh, that's the direct link to the consumer. And so th- to get approved, the process you know, is no easy undertaking. It was, the application fee was. What one hundred fifty thousand or yeah, cost neutral. ICANN's cost to to evaluate them is one hundred eighty thousand dollars, one hundred eighty five thousand dollars, and uh, part of that process is a very detailed check of their technical capability to run a registry. Uh, we look at their financial capability to manage and run a registry and, and failover processes and other things, um, and we look at. Um, whether there's any objections to those strings, so whether there are possibilities of confusion or similarity of strings that might cause uh, um, some some uh, people to type in one word when they really meant another. And there, so there's all sorts of detailed levels of review that have occurred uh, just at that initial evaluation phase, and then there's been another round of uh, objection processes, so allowing third parties who might be impacted or might have rights that are impacted to object to those strings, and we're currently in the objection phase of the evaluations. Now, we did a show on Reveal Day, and we talked about some of the applications that were coming in, and some, you know, some of them made a lot of sense. You know, for example, um, .Vegas or .Boston, you know, to allow people to, you know, to market or do a lot of professional ones, .law, .dentist, you know, a way for um, to create a segmentation so consumers know to look in that area. And um, and that made sense. But there were some that there was, I found quite perplexing. And uh, one of them was, you know, Google buying, I think it was .lol and .wtf. But I think .wtf was objected to. Um, well, so, so there's there's a number of different types of objections. So so we'll go first to just the objection pool, right? Mm-hmm. So so grounds you can object for include string confusion. So it's similar to something else that mm-hmm. already exists, or it's similar. Uh, so legal rights. Um, so if I have a trademark and you are uh, creating a top level domain that interferes with my mark, that might be a, a concern. And so there's objections. There's 69 different objections on that basis. Uh, limited public interest. So is is there something that's um, objectionable about it in a way that uh, creates a, a, a public interest concern? Right. Uh, and that might be where the objection came in on <laughs> WTF. I'm not sure. Uh, and then there's community objections. So some of the strings. Uh, are are being presented as community based strings and uh, and there's an opportunity for specific communities to uh, form on the internet like we've done with uh, sponsored top level domains and other uh, others in the past and so those uh, there's hundred more than a hundred objections mm-hmm. just in that category the the, the great thing, though, about allowing this level of innovation and not prescribing what the strings would be, but allowing companies like Google yeah. and others to pick those strings is that that's where the innovation will come in. I mean, who would have predicted 
the success of Facebook or Twitter or, yeah. or any of these things uh, based on their name, you know, so, so that we expect that there will be a lot of creativity opportunity in these spaces, a lot of business innovation opportunity. And, and to me, that's, you know, one of the great benefits of opening up a program like this and really allowing those strings to uh, permit the next level of innovation to occur on the Internet. And I think that's interesting because, you know, for example, for I think for law, there was dot .law, there were dot .attorneys, and there was, and the same in some other fields where it, it could have gone multiple ways. In terms, of, you know, and so, and actually, I guess we'll ultimately see which one who's who gets the, you know, who gets the traffic. Right. And um, so, um, we're going to take a short break, but we when we come back. We'll be talking to John Jeffrey about all things I can after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. If you're constantly struggling to find more customers, revenue, or hours in the day, Infusionsoft can help you have the business you've always wanted. For over 10 years, Infusionsoft has been helping business owners just like you find the financial freedom and peace of mind you've been searching for. I'm Scott Martineau, co-founder of Infusionsoft. If you're struggling to find more customers, more revenue, or more hours in the day, Infusionsoft is the proven solution you're looking for. Infusionsoft, the only all-in-one sales and marketing software created specifically for small businesses. Learn more at www.infusionsoft.com slash radio. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate, display media, or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital... The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back with John Dreffy and um, here in the uh, ICANN's new offices in um, Los Angeles, California. They recently moved here from Marina del Rey. And I have to tell you, I was shocked when I found out that ICANN was located in Marina del Rey. That, in some ways, it's, that was the center of the Internet Well, that's universe. a great story, too, right? So um, USC's ISI group is set up in a building in Marina del Rey. And so John Postel, who had the original, did the original IANA function that, the numbering uh, names function. Mm-hmm. He he assigned some of the initial TLDs to universities and others that uh, set up top level domains. And he had this function. He was the sole guy sitting in one room in the ISI building at USC, uh, performing the functions that now uh, take many many more people to do. And when uh, when uh, ICANN was created, he was uh, scheduled to be the original CTO, but faced an untimely death and, oh. and was unable to join ICANN. But his legacy 
uh, has lived on at ICANN and the intent of uh, allowing the internet to flourish and allowing these names to expand. You know, we're we're just now. I've been here for ten years, and we're just getting to the point where we're opening up this top level domain space, which has been one of the goals and objectives of ICANN since its formation. Interesting. And then, but why Marina? Just because that was his. So, was his so work. essentially, the original ICANN offices were right in the hallway where John Postel had originally done his work, <laughs> and it was a space that was originally sublet from USC and from the ISI group there. It's interesting. It's kind of like you, you, people are surprised to find that the the National um, Aquarium is in Baltimore, right? And not you know in Washington and. But it, but if you think about it, it's uh, you know people say why in California? Why would ICANN be in California? It's really a historical tradition. It's where this function that ICANN performs was originally done. And and you've adapted well. Obviously, you know, these offices are nice. But in, as you mentioned, you've been you've gone international and you know, Istanbul and Singapore. Those are your three main offices. And from the very formation of ICANN, it was it was intended to be a global organization, and it was intended to grow that way. And a lot of work's gone into making sure that. Uh, internationalized domain names and other important factors that are more important uh, outside the United States but are very important to the global Internet uh, occur. So right now, uh, language, uh, different internationalized domain names, uh, TLDs, are now available in Cyrillic and Arabic and, and, and different scripts than Latin and this, uh, Chinese and Japanese. And this is a very critical development. I mean, I'm sure you know if you traveled to Asia Ten years ago, you you went into you, as you're going out from the airport, you'd see great big signs that have Japanese characters yes. as the domain name, and then it says .com at the end. Or, and and that's a that'd be a frustrating thing if you were using the internet in a different language, but you had to switch over to your Latin alphabet in order to end com, yeah. the string. And so recently, in the last few years, IDNs have been introduced, and with this new GTLD program. Many of these applications are, in fact, IDN strings. So. Right, and I noticed you guys had a lottery um, right. to determine who prioritization drawing exactly, yeah. Yeah. and um, and a lot of the people who want you got the first you know slots in that drawing are the uh, I think you know Asian and maybe some. In uh, fact, the IDNs were given priority in the prioritization drawing, so they were drawn first. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, one thing that's going on as part of this whole process is you're also looking at the who is system and you know there has been some talk about that in terms of um i think there's some concerns about um possibly changing it so that that information wouldn't be as readily available can you speak to that at all um, sure. Could, do you mind repeating your question? Sure. Well, I, I noticed that there have been some. You know, you had the last meeting, there was a report done on um, that the, the WHOIS system isn't entirely working, and a lot of times the information is not complete, it's not verified. And so, and there was kind of a two tiered um, response to that proposed where one, you would verify that the WHOIS information is correct. Um, but two, you might explore ways of restricting access to that in order to ensure that those, you know, the privacy of the people who listed isn't, um, isn't violated. And then here in the U.S., you know, we've had some court cases in, in the area of um, you know, commercial email about whether it's proper to use what you know, has become popular in um, some marketers is to use of private domains where that information isn't readily available, but you have to go through you know, the private domain system and they forward the information. So, so, so there's been a robust debate in ICANN space about who is throughout the years. Um, and who is was originally you know, formatted for a different 
part of the internet, different mm-hmm. time in the internet. And and for those who don't know, and most of your listeners are going to know, but who is information is where you find the people who run that individual domain site. So you can type in internic uh, or other go to other sites, usually the registrar sites, and you can type into the who is information a specific domain, and it'll give you information back about who administers that mm-hmm. um, and who the technical people are that are, are working in that. Um, and and the the question, particularly from the intellectual property uh, uh, groups, has been, how can I find the person who's misusing a specific domain? And so one of the most recent, most popular uses is locating people that are abusing rights or um, taking advantage of trademarks or cyber squatting or right. doing other things. And, of course, people who are doing bad things on the Internet are not going to type in uh, the correct information so you can readily find them. Um, and so there's been a lot of dialogue at ICANN about how to require more accuracy in who is and how to uh, establish a way to do that. And we certainly knew that registrars are taking credit card information, other information, and they were selling um, things to people. And then the information that would often end up in the who is and for these uh, people who were intending to do harm would be inaccurate. And so there was a dialogue between the law enforcement community and uh, the registrars and the registries and the uh, the users of the internet and, and groups that participate in different aspects of ICANN and they've had a robust privacy experts and they've had a robust debate about what information could and should be required, how it could be verified, what would be an appropriate level of verification, what should be listed uh, publicly and what could be listed behind a proxy and how you can get the information if there's a proxy holder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through uh, rounds and rounds and rounds of dialogue, there's been discussions about that. And most recently in the Registrar Accreditation Agreement, we call it the RAA, uh, there's a a new set of rules that apply to registrars about how they set up and some simple steps that they'll take to a basic level of authentication or or verification of the information that's in who is. So when when, when I get my um, Dot Bennett um, registrar... um, (laughs) Registry, and I'll, I sign an agreement. I will have that new who is. Well, so for Dot Bennett, right? <laughs> so for Dot Bennett, we're going to know who you are because you're going to go through a whole detailed yes. set of things to make sure that you're capable of running that registry. If you sell those names in under Dot Bennett, there there's an information requirement that you have accurate information in From the who is people. about who buys those second level domains. So so the names in front of Dot Bennett. So that's being implemented going forward for the new um, GTLDs. What about for the, the .dot coms and .dot nets and whatnot? Well, so so for .com and, and .net and .biz and many of the 22 that already exist, there are already a set of rules in place for who is. There's already uh, requirements of accuracy, and uh, and we, we certainly will see with the registrars that register in uh, those domains, those requirements will fall on those registrars as well. So in order to sell new domains, you have to enter into the 2013 version of the Registrar Accreditation Agreement. And when you sign that agreement, your requirement relating to who is another piece is, uh, falls across all of the generic top-level domains. Now, um, in terms of you know, that, is, does ICANN have a position on the, um, the um, Privacy Protect system for domain registration? Uh, so, so where they're not listed publicly, it just says you know, you know some yeah. random characters at you know privacy domain service or whatever it is. So, 
has never taken a formal position on pro- proxy registrations or privacy registrations. Um, th- we've had a lot of dialogue in our community about those. Uh, certainly, we understand that there's a privacy uh, request for that to be a useful thing, and that's been uh, adopted by the registrars and presented in the community, and no policy has been developed which counteracts that. Uh, there's certainly been discussion about you know what that means, and mm-hmm. we and we've gone through a series of discussion points about if you in fact have privacy registrations or proxy registrations, and there's an abuse of the name, how will that information that's behind the proxy or privacy be accessible? So, uh, so we focused on uh, issues surrounding how to access it where there's abuse, rather than uh, taking a position specifically on, the, on whether on there would be privacy or proxy registrations. Um, now. The benefit of expanding the GTLDs is that it allows um, people to differentiate from a crowded field. So, um, you know, for example, if I noticed it was dot basketball, that means it dot everything basically. <laughs> if you look at the list, but you know, so instead, if you're let's go back to dot Vegas. If you're looking for to plan a trip to go, to, you know, um, for Vegas, and you can kind of focus on those domains, and you know where to find people, and it allows you. It's also a good mnemonic device, you know, dot, you know something something dot Vegas, and um, and so there's definitely value in terms of allowing segmentation, allowing you know, greater branding. Um, but you know, I know the brand community has said, well, right now I think we say there's 23 um, you know, generic um, top level domains. By ex- 22 by expanding, well, not including dot Bennett, um, but, by, <laughs> <laughs> but by expanding it, you've um, Basically, a lot of them, you know, because of typo squatters and cyber squatters, um, you basically expanded the area that they have to cover defensively if that's what they want. But I think ICANN has, has tried to work with them and come up with something to accommodate their concerns. Um, could you describe that for us? Yes. So intellectual property in the constituency has been a very powerful uh, community inside of ICANN, and they've they've been very active in discussions of how to set policies and how these new GTLDs would operate. Um, so one thing that is occurring in this new round is a trademark clearinghouse. So there's an opportunity for trademark holders uh, to register their marks in a trademark clearinghouse that can be used in a variety of ways across the registry. So uh, it presents an opportunity for an additional level of protection for trademarks and, uh, and identification of trademarks to those uh, who sometimes register names without realizing that they're in fact uh, uh, tripping across trademarks. So, so again, yeah, for example, what is it in Bugs Bunny? The Acme, okay. um, um, you know, Roadrunner, Acme umbrellas or whatever. And so I register that. And so when you know dot WTF or dot LOL or you know dot Vegas, if there's an Acme Vegas, so there very well could be a notice that goes out to someone that registers a name or intends to register a name in any of the new TLDs where there's already a trademark that exists. That would be one possible use. And so I get the notice, and so but it's incumbent on me then to act. Well, it's in, it's incumbent on you to act, but because but you'll be then under notice that you're acting mm-hmm. uh, potentially against a mark. I mean, if you think about it, most marks. Most trademarks uh, throughout the world have classifications of use, and so uh, it isn't intended to be that every trademark has a block to every other registration in all locations in, across whatever namespace. So, but you know, there are some marks that extend across many different classifications, but there are also marks that are limited, where the protection should be about the specific classification of use, uh, and so. 
you know, it gets a little bit more technical, but you want people who are registering to have notice and you want the trademark holders to be able to understand where the uses of those marks might be occurring. And, 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 go ahead. and just, I was just going to go back, you know, so you were talking about, uh, you know, the opportunities that are present though are really pretty fascinating. If you think about the dot-com space right now, if you try to find a name, uh, and you type it into uh, one of your registrars, it's very hard to find a string that's not already used. Yes. And there's been a lot of speculation on second-level names of, you know, of any short uh, a, a number of characters for some period of time. And, and so this really presents an opportunity to, you know, to, to be able where you can't register Bennett.com because somebody right. else has registered a long time ago. Um, and probably won't be He's giving dead. it up, no, or, just kidding. <laughs> or would or would only sell it to you in a secondary marketplace for a significant amount of money. You now have an opportunity to register it across many different places that might more relate to what you want to use it for. Well, it's funny you mention that because one thing that comes up, you just you know, as you're texting something, and you have this long email address to enter, and you think, God, I would love to just have like a two letter, right. you know. BK at BK.com and you know but all the two love you know the, the shortened domains and the short they're all taken and um, so yeah that does create that opportunity and uh, it'd be interesting to some ways if we ever get to symbols that would make it really interesting yeah and, and, but I think one thing we'll see is that as the these new TLDs come online uh, there's going to be more and more open namespace and more and more opportunities for creativity for people that want to create domain names. So, so the, you know, so, you know, we, we were talking about Facebook and Twitter and Mm -hmm. other things before at the top level, but those issues also occur at the second level. Exactly. Uh, It's very hard if you want to create a new company, it's very hard to find a name in a TLD that is meaningful and potentially catchy and usable. Uh, and this presents opportunities to be able to do that across a number of different top-level domains. The, the thing, though, is I mean, it's not like you would start a company by creating a top-level domain first. Right. Because that's a big investment. I mean, that's basically, yeah, that's a... Uh, well, a top-level domain, right. But a secondary-level domain is what we're... So a second-level domain name is what we're talking about also, right. right? So you talked about law. If you wanted to have, you know... Uh, Internet Law Group or any of the other names that are relating to your businesses, there you have an opportunity to be in a different namespace. And there might be more than one uh, TLD that suffices uh, to, to, to compete in that, com- mm-hmm. to that community and provide opportunities for you to register in a number of different places and differentiate your mm-hmm. brand from others uh, instead of having to run it out to 22 uh, characters or, or longer just to find a new name that's at the base price of what uh, second-level domains are sold at. That is interesting. Yeah, I think you will see. You know, one thing I'm wondering, so that the process, we do, um, reveal day was last year. Um, when will, you know, it, on average, you, you, more, more applications than not will have been approved um, when we will reach that point, yeah. So we, so we're already Yeah, so we're already entering into contracts. We expect that later this year there will be top level domains going into the route, and uh, soon thereafter they'll continue. So we've committed to do um, tens per week for as long as they, they come. And, so, and uh, by, we, we already have, we literally already have signed contracts in the gtld space for more strings than currently exist wow. so, so and that's this is the tip of the iceberg uh, definitely and and so i'm just thinking okay so they've invested this money and it, so within two years out they'll be launching and i'm wondering no no within 
this year. Within this year, okay. So with, with a year and a half, a year yeah. and a quarter, they're they're yeah. launching. It'd be interesting to see. We'll see. I wonder to what extent we will see much a drop off. Um, whether any of them will actually go out of business it, because they just don't get traction. And I'm I'm wondering what the you know what happens you know the, in terms of them in the market how well. Um, they'll be received. It seems like we've seen some indications where some of them had big rushes to sign up, and so which is positive. That shows that you guys, you know, definitely had foresight. Um, but I'm wondering if you know, <laughs> you know, like the new Coke, you know, there'll be some domain out there that just doesn't get traction. What happens then if, if it fails? Yeah. So, do, so you, do you pull it back, or is it just left out there? Well, it's a good question. So, so this has been intended to open up a new competition at the top level domain space, and and I think that's. There's, it's clear there was a demand just by the number of applications, the number of people that are participating, the amount of money that have, has been already been put into it. You see real investment money coming in. You see groups that have been created to form TLDs. Um, if some of the TLDs don't succeed or they go bankrupt or they fail, there's processes in place. They had to post money. Uh, there's an, what we call an eBORO, uh, which is a failover process so that if one of the registries uh, goes dark, uh, there's a process to continue to run that registry either until um, until someone comes in and takes it or it winds down. Uh, so there are built-in processes uh, in place to make sure that registries don't just fall over but in fact have a period of which they would either uh, be bought up by someone else or they would collapse. And um, to be curious to see what that is, and um, but so far everything's looking swimmingly. Well, they haven't gone out yet, so we expect that there will be um, a number of them that will launch uh, later this year, and, and it will continue into next year, and there'll, I'm sure there will be those that are fantastically successful and those that are less so, And that's but that's part of the charm of it in a way, if you think about it. It's presenting opportunities for people to create and innovate in this space and to uh, be competitive with the existing players where there's now limited namespace available. Now, um as that happens, and I just completely lost my train of thought, but, um, you know, as, oh, I know, the next meeting in Buenos Aires, you know, what, what will be, if any people listening and decide, you know, I, I wouldn't mind going to Buenos Aires, what is the topic? Oh, so, so on the ICANN website, there's a lot of different information about um, the different topics that are going on in ICANN. So we've talked about new generic top-level domains, mm-hmm. but that's one part of what's going on at ICANN. Now, there's so the ICANN we, Labs, too. Right. So ICANN Labs is an example of uh, the community tools that are being built. So ICANN Labs is, is set up to facilitate participation in ICANN's processes and to allow tools to be developed uh, that would permit additional participation by individuals, companies, organizations that want to participate in the processes. And But at ICANN, there's more than just GTLDs, right? We also have the uh, country code community mm-hmm. that participates. Uh, we have... Um, IP community has a specific uh, group. I know lots of your listeners are involved with that space, and there's an IP uh, stakeholder group that participates within the generic name supporting organization, Mm -hmm. the GNSO, which sets policy for GTLDs. Uh, And the IP community, the IP stakeholder group, participates specifically in the dialogue about how to set rules for trademarks and how to set up things like the Trademark Clearinghouse. Um, But but there's business constituency or stakeholder involvement. There's... um, uh, uh, 
IPs and ISPs and all sorts of different groups that participate throughout the ICANN processes all uh, have inputs into uh, what ICANN processes and policies will be set. Now, you, um, you just came back from Durban. Yes. And um, what was the most memorable part of that? It was not my ICANN involvement. So ICANN, uh, Durban, ICANN Durban was fantastic in that it's a, it's a fantastic, every time our community comes together, it's loud and lots of voices are occurring and you uh and there's a lot of great dialogue about all of these detailed policy issues um and for the last few years there's been a lot of talk about new gtlds but there's ongoing policy being developed across the sphere but my personal moment at durban was i was there during mandela day and had an opportunity to go into one of the schools in one of the communities and talk to a group of 14 year old kids um, and had a really wonderful experience just um, trying to connect to this group of kids and realizing what the different educational environment was for them and the possibility that the Internet brings to a community like that. Um, if you think about um, a school that has limited resources and limited capability of, um, uh, of, of connecting to the Internet and you look at what would happen if computers existed inside that school and the world's information was connected to that school and you, you stop and ponder that, it's pretty amazing. And when, when I saw the faces of this group of 14-year-olds and we talked about the Internet and what the Internet was and they talked to me about what they wanted to be with their lives and how they wanted to communicate with the world and what they wanted me to know about them and uh, what they wanted me to tell people about them it, it was pretty fascinating. Um, and what was that? So, so as I was leaving, I said, you know, what do you want me to go back and tell people in the United States or my own kids about you, what, about what I learned about you? And this beautiful little girl in the front uh, stands up and she says, sir, I'd really like you to tell everyone how passionate we are about learning and how beautiful we are. So, John, if, if people want to learn more about ICANN or, or learn more about what you do at ICANN, what, what should they uh, ICANN.org is the site, so there's a lot of things to see. There's a lot of, if you click on the About tab, you can learn some of the basics about ICANN. Also, go to myicann.org, which is a new way of looking at the information on ICANN where you can tailor it to what your specific interests are, and you can get newsletters and other things that bring you information about the ICANN processes that you're interested in. And watch ICANN Labs because I think you'll see a lot of innovative ways to participate in the consensus process and, and, and throughout ICANN. You've done some great stuff in terms of the videos I've seen. In terms explaining the, the top-level domain system. So whoever's involved with that, please tell them they've done a great job. But yes, I think it's a great place to, to learn more. And uh, I want to thank you for, for being on. It's been a great honor to have you and for hosting us here at ICANN. It's my pleasure. Great seeing you. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is AuthorityLabs.com. 
Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. I'm John Ball, and I'm one of the founders of Page One Power. Page One Power is a custom link building firm based in Boise, Idaho. We increase search rankings and web traffic for world-class brands and mom-and-pop shops all around the globe. Our link building strategies work because we focus on relevancy and quality, and we don't outsource anything. Our in-house staff of professional writers and researchers is the best in the industry. We're the link builders you've been looking for. Visit us today at pageonepower.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an excerpt from the May 30, 2012 Cyber Law and Business Report, featuring Chairwoman of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, Anne Ravel. It was a special edition broadcast live from my alma mater, Georgetown University Law Center, that focused on disclosures in both commercial and political speech. We were in Washington since, well, it was spring, and that usually is a pretty good excuse to be there, but in particular because across the street, the Federal Trade Commission was holding a workshop on advertising and privacy disclosures in a digital world that would lead to changes in its dot-com disclosure requirements and are discussed in the first half of the show, but not included in this excerpt. The workshop came after the FTC had released its so-called blogger guidelines in connection with its updated endorsement guides, which had drawn mixed reaction amongst the blogosphere. In the second half, we spoke by phone with Commissioner Ravel in Sacramento about a recent trial balloon she had made regarding applying the principles of the blogger guidelines, namely disclosure of sponsorship or affiliation, to the political arena when it came to endorsements of candidates or propositions. It would not be until September 2013 that the Commission would adopt some form of this rule. Governor Jerry Brown appointed Ravel to the Commission in 2011. Prior to that, she had served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General under Attorney General Holder under President Obama. Ravel also served as County Counsel for Santa Clara County for more than a decade and was recognized by the California Bar as Public Attorney of the Year in 2007. In June, President Obama nominated her to the Federal Election Commission. Our discussion with Chairman Ravel follows. Exactly is that, and how does it differ from other states? The uh, California Fair Political Practices Commission was established by initiative of the voters, like everything else in California, after Watergate. And the, the purpose of it was to restore public faith and trust in government. Um, and ultimately, because of that uh, faith and trust in government, people would be encouraged to participate in politics, run for office, become more engaged in their communities. Um, the FPPC has a really broad uh, scope of responsibilities. We regulate campaign financing and spending, financial conflicts of interest, lobbyists, registration and reporting, um, post-government employment, uh, mass mailings, gifts, etc. I think the way that this is somewhat different is 
that the commission itself is um, an independent, nonpartisan um, commission, independent of the governor and the legislature. Um, the, I'm chair, and I was appointed by the governor, Governor Brown, in um, 2011, and the four other commissioners are appointed by various constitutional officers of the state, uh, but there needs to be a balance of political parties. Now, um, you, you would differ from other states where the person with this type of responsibility would be maybe housed in the Secretary of State's office, for example? Exactly. And and I think that's the difference. In, in California, the Secretary of State is a partisan office. We are totally independent as a commission. Uh, we have a base level of funding. Um, we're also permitted to uh, fundraise to augment our funding. And, of course, we also uh, get augmentations uh, in the yearly budget. But uh, it definitely this commission operates independently. And in order to change our statute, uh, there has to be either a two-thirds vote of the legislature or a vote of the people. Now, um, you, your, your appearance today is very timely because um, I'm, I'm calling to you from Washington. I'm right across the street from the Federal Trade Commission, which is right now having a conference on updating its disclosure guidelines for you know, e-commerce and mobile commerce. Right. And so we have, what are the appropriate disclosures that need to be made in a commercial setting, you know, particularly where there's conflicts of interest? And and so you dipped your toe in this water um, in the political setting. Yes. And, um, I, and go, ahead. go ahead. No, and and do you see uh, any, a similarity between the two or... Um, or just the, the kind of the basic harm to consumers that you were concerned, concerned about, whether it's a political consumer or a, um, a um, financial consumer? Right. Uh, it, it was actually the FTC disclosure uh, guidance that uh, was the impetus for my thinking about proposing such a thing in the political arena, um, although I actually think, uh, while I'm concerned about consumer rights and, and think of that uh, as part of the basis for this, I, I think that in the political arena it is more important, actually, because rather than just uh, a financial impact, which is serious enough, and I think consumer rights are serious, but uh, the decision about how to vote uh, is often based on voting cues because people simply don't have the time to look into all of the issues, whether it be about a candidate or about a, a measure. And so they they take cues and they, they pay attention to what others write. Uh, and since now, um, and I saw this, there was a Pew Research Center study about uh, how most people are now getting their information about politics from and news from mobile devices, from Internet kinds of information such as blogs. Uh, it seemed to me that this was an opportune time to start the discussion about this really important subject. 
And, and you make a good point because I think you know, a decision over what toothpaste to buy versus a decision over a United States senator who can you know, confirm treaties and um, Supreme Court nominees, uh, there seems to be a, a, a great disproportion uh, in terms of the, the weight of, of one decision versus the other. And, and given that we're talking about political speech, is it best to not regulate and then let you know the um, let the regulation occur through counter arguments, or is it better in some cases where it, it, it's just so egregious to have some kind of um, you know prohibition or some kind of um, you know template that has to be disclosed in certain circumstances? Right. Um, you know, yes, we're talking about political speech, but clearly political speech um, can be regulated uh, in the sense of not the content of it, but uh, some of the source of it. Uh, so I think that... That's that format, the, yeah. Yes, and that's we require in California very clear, of course, this is of campaigns, but on advertisements, we require that they indicate not just the name of the committee, um, but the top funders of the advertising. Um, and that's political speech, and we do it for independent expenditures as well. Uh, so I think that, that there is some precedence for, for providing this kind of information. Um, but you're right. It's it's that is an issue that uh, has been raised by the bloggers, um, arguing that this is a First Amendment intrusion and that it is inappropriate to to require them to identify the basis for their speech because they should be able to speak freely. And make money. <laughs> and, and make money. Uh, it's kind right. of parallel to the um, debate we're having over campaign finance, where you know, should there be limits or should they just, just have simultaneous disclosure? Mm-hmm. You know, if you know what they're getting, what's the harm if they're getting you know, boatloads of money? Uh, as long as they disclose where it's coming from. Right. And then, you know, that's part of the debate that is happening in the post-Citizens United world. Yes. And and those are the kinds of, of debates that that should be um, more um, more common, actually, because I, I I think as chair of the Fair Political Practices Commission, I mean, I have noted that a number of the rules that we have um, don't serve the purpose that they were intended to serve. So. It, it makes sense for us rather than than requiring campaigns or or public officials uh, to go through a lot of um, effort in in filling out forms that we need to think about what kind of information the public needs to know in order to be able to make thoughtful decisions in both about <clears throat> their public officials and the, in their communities, as well as about candidates. So the the proposal is off the table, and you're having stakeholder meetings and discussions right. about what what to do. Is it possible there might be some kind of just you know, suggested best practice 
um, for this election, or there really isn't likely to be any guidance for this election? <clears throat> no, I'm, I would very much like to have a suggested best practice. In fact, when I made the proposal, that was uh, what I indicated initially, because I know um, that's that's how the FTC did it. I was going to say, that's also the it, FTC model, yes. <laughs> exactly. And so that was my proposal, was that it would be done as a suggestion. Um, and it, I indicated that I would like to, to see it happen as regulation. But in part, um, that's, that's something that I think needs to be pursued. But I also think the conversation about this has to be uh, um, more more um, common because this is something that people knew about but was not disclosed to the public. I want to thank you very much for joining us. It's been an honor to have you. And if people want to learn more about this issue, where should they go? Uh, well, they are... Um, able to go to the uh, FPPC website uh, where we have some information about our, our both this issue and other issues and also we will have information about our proposals and the FPPC website is fppc.ca.gov This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.